today is several things coming together, including Father's Day, Summer Solstice, the third Sunday of Pride Month, and the weekend of Juneteenth. Father's Day is a time where we give thanks for our fathers. It is also a time that is very, very important for us to pause and recognize us, for those of us who are men, the importance of whether we are biological fathers or whether we are called by God to simply be big brothers, mentors, uncles, good neighbors, kind friends, whatever it is that God is calling us to do, we as men on this day can claim the power that God gives to us to be sacred messengers of good news and hope and understanding and compassion. Let us model what it means to be a man in today's world, in caring for others, in being the kind of people that God needs us to be in these very difficult times. It is summer solstice, which means that the, the light is bright and the day is long and across the world, people are celebrating the fact that uh, the, the sun is at its apex, things are growing, the world has come fully back to life and it is a time of joy and celebration and commemoration of the mystery of God's world and how things grow and move and develop and pass on from generation to generation. It is also Pride Month, and I give thanks that my life has been so richly blessed by so many people who surround me that are part of the LGBTQ community. I'm so thankful for our church and our full embracing of our friends who are gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender and queer, and we're so grateful for you, so thankful for you, and so blessed that you have chosen to allow your lives to be interwoven with our lives and that we are one together in the body of Christ in this place at First Baptist Decatur. And it is the weekend of Juneteenth. June 19th is the official date for what has become known as Juneteenth. It is the day when in Galveston, Texas in 1865, on June 19th, a declaration was read to those people who had been enslaved, who had been enslaved and who had been owned by other human beings, that they were now free and were no longer enslaved people they were free. Tragically, this was three months after General Robert E. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox. These people had been freed for three months, but nobody bothered to tell them until a Union general read to them the declaration on June 19th. This has become a very, very important uh, commemoration in the African-American community and should be an important commemoration for all of us in our country in the recognition not only of the power and the importance of liberation, but also the sad and tragic history that we all are a part of and must recognize and attempt to move past and to heal. We will hear more about that in a few moments, but I hope all four of these aspects of this day that are kind of resonating in the background will, will, will add power and poignancy to our scriptures for today. In Romans chapter 6, we hear these powerful words that Jesus died on the cross to bring death 
to death and to give us power to overcome sin. The specific words in conclusion of our passage in Romans 6, so that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, when Jesus was nailed on the cross, so was your sin nailed on the cross. You now are empowered to overcome sin. You can't do it on your own. The context for our 21st chapter of Genesis uh, resonates with this sixth verse in or sixth chapter of Romans because in, in Genesis, the context of this very important passage on Hagar we're going to cover in just a moment comes as the result of a, a trajectory where the first part of Genesis is, is telling stories in general about the human condition. In the second chapter of Genesis, we discover that we are shaped out of dust and we have the breath of God blown into us. We are both earthy and holy simultaneously. In ourselves, we have the ability to make good choices, but we also gravitate often to bad choices. In the third chapter of Genesis, in the the garden, the man and the woman wrestling with this discovery that they find out they are naked, that is, they're exposed, they are vulnerable to what's around them, and it generates this entirely new emotion felt for the first time in the Bible in this third chapter, the feeling of fear. They are afraid. They discover that they're not in control of their circumstances, and they are at risk, and they are vulnerable. In the fourth chapter, that continues. The, the children of that man and woman, Cain and Abel, are in competition with each other. Abel, unaware of his brother's anger and jealousy, Cain, looking at, at Abel as his competition, seeking to eliminate his competition, God begins to realize what's going on in Cain's psyche, and God says these words in the fourth chapter of Genesis that is so important as a part of our, our background for Romans 6 and also uh, Genesis chapter 21. It is when Cain is struggling with what he's going to do, and it is clear Cain is going to do something bad, and God says, if you don't do well, sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, you have the potential to make the right choices, to say yes to goodness and kindness and righteousness, and to say no to selfishness and foolishness. And yet Cain sadly chose wrongly, and he sought to eliminate his competition, and he killed his brother, Abel. And we said uh, a couple of weeks ago that this, this is a very, very important, it's kind of a fulcrum in a way in Scripture, in that we find both uh, God condemns Cain and what Cain has done, and, and essentially says, you are your brother's keeper. You are called to care for your brother and for those around you. And we discover uh, that that. Cain is expected to master his sin, to overcome his sin. We discover in our own experiences, and we know from the truth of Scripture, that this is not really realistic for most of us. We stumble, we fall, we make bad choices. Which is why in Romans 6, the, the emphasis is so important that, that we are given this extra sense of power and potential because Jesus' death on a cross takes that death and gets rid of 
death as a permanent condition, and it takes sin, and it gives us the power to make the right choices, to make the good choices, to say no to foolishness and selfishness, and to say yes to righteousness and holiness. This is the ongoing tension that continues, but it echoes in the back of our, of our human condition that in those times when we lean in the wrong direction, we should be mindful of this very important calling in our hearts and in our spirits. We can do better. We can make better choices. We are called to make better choices, and we are empowered to make better choices. Chapter 6 of Romans, and moving now to the 21st chapter of Genesis. We become very specific. So the stories that move through Genesis in the first part are general. They're about all humans, sort of encapsulating the, the struggles that we have with fear and earthiness versus uh, sacredness and holiness, this sense of, of nakedness and being vulnerable to things around us, the competitive nature that Cain uh, displays against Abel. In the Tower of Babel story in the 11th chapter, this, this sense of pride, the people built the tower to the heavens, not so much so they could communicate and be closer to God, but so they could make a name for themselves and be remembered. So there is this, this ongoing tension that is very clear in Genesis, setting the stage now for a particular uh, people uh, when God becomes quite specific in choosing this strange couple, Abraham and Sarah, these wandering nomads, these older people who were childless and didn't have much of a future. And yet in the 12th chapter, right after the Tower of Babel story, in the 12th chapter, God chooses Abraham and says, Abraham, I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is a remarkable statement. It's a remarkable blessing because, of course, in the context of Abraham's life, it was a tribal society. Every little tribe, every little family group was out for themselves. They were not looking beyond simply the confines of their, of their own bloodline. And yet, here, all of a sudden, uh, Abraham is confronted with this much larger worldwide reality of a broader family of faith. It's very difficult for him to even imagine what God is imagining, what God is hoping for. But this begins the trajectory of a long pilgrimage of, of those who have come before us, trying to figure out what is the right thing to do, who are we really, and more particularly, whose are we? And what difference does that make in how we treat one another? This brings us now to the 21st chapter of Genesis, from chapter 12, when, when Abraham is called and his story woven in with Sarah's story and all the things that happen from Canaan to Egypt and then back to Canaan. In the 16th chapter, Paul Wallace, our pastor of adult education, did a terrific job in his Wednesday night Bible study covering the 16th chapter when we're first uh, encountering the tension that begins to arise in this little family. For Abraham and Sarah are still recognizing that they're childless. Sarah is increasingly 
disbelieving that that will change, even though they've been promised that there will be an intervention, that something miraculous will happen in their lives, Sarah has continued to be treated as property, as a second-class citizen, cast aside and less than human because she, she is unable to provide Abraham with a male heir. Therefore, she looks to this person we're now introduced to in the 16th chapter, a woman by the name of Hagar. The Bible is specific in saying she is a, an Egyptian slave. So let's pause for a moment and evaluate that simple phrase. Either she was captured and forced to be a slave, uh, or she was purchased as a slave, sold because maybe her family couldn't afford her and needed extra money. We don't know her background, but we know that whatever brought her into slavery and into being owned by Sarah, this is a tragic condition, made even more tragic now, because Sarah says, well, I can't have a child, so Abraham, I'm going to give you my slave and let her be my surrogate. In other words, she's forced to bear a child for a man that is her master. This has multi-levels to it and is, is a very difficult passage to digest for those of us who are trying to be faithful to what the Bible is teaching. In the African-American community, specifically for African-American men and in African-American women and what has emerged now as womanist theology, Hagar really has emerged as a, a heroine and, and kind of a, a representative of a, a woman who is resilient and powerful in spite of incredibly difficult circumstances. She ends up becoming uh, pregnant by Abraham. She ends up being resented by Sarah. She is cast out, first of all, in the 16th chapter of Genesis into the desert, only to be rescued by a holy presence where God comes to her and says, you will be the mother of a great nation. Do not leave. Do not flee. Go back. I will protect you. It is the first time that a person in the Bible sees God. In fact, it is an amazing thing that Hagar names God in this moment, El Roy. It is the God who sees and sees me. It is the rescuing presence of the spiritual uh, one who has given me a new lease on life. It is an amazing moment where Hagar names God. In, in other passages, God uh, is introduced to Abraham, is introduced to Moses. The term Yahweh, I am who I am, is what God says. This is who I am, Moses. But in the case of, of Hagar, she names God, and God rescues her and gives her this covenant promise. Now, this moves on from the 16th chapter of Genesis into the 21st chapter, where now Hagar has given birth, and Sarah has given birth. We have Ishmael, who is Hagar's son. We have Isaac, or Laughter, who is uh, Sarah's son. Ishmael and Isaac are playing together. That's an important moment in this 21st chapter. These two little boys are playing together. Sarah witnesses this 
It makes her furious. She's for, now for a second time demands that Hagar be exiled from her presence. She tells this to Abraham, and Abraham sadly says, well, she's your slave. Do with her as you please. So in the 16th chapter, Sarah had beaten, apparently, had beaten Hagar to the point where she wanted to flee. Now in the 21st chapter, Sarah specifically kicks Hagar out, and not just out, she kicks her out into the wilderness of Beersheba. I have been to Beersheba. There is a huge market there in Beersheba. Beersheba is right on the edge of the Negev desert. And, and in that market, you literally are in this, this uh, joyful, uh, amazing Arab Bedouin market filled with all kinds of beautiful smells and foods and things to buy. And just on the edge of that market is a vast wilderness. And in, in our terminology, often wilderness is like a huge wooded area or forest. In the Negev, it is wilderness as in desert. There is nothing. There's very little that grows and there certainly is no water. And this is the place where Sarah cast Hagar and Ishmael out. In other words, it's a death sentence. Not only does Sarah not want Hagar around, she wants her dead. Abraham prepares a, a flask of water and a little bag of bread and gives it to her and wishes her well. And she and Ishmael move into the wilderness of Beersheba in death. And Hagar, in her, her tragic moment of, of poignancy, looking on her, her little son and saying, I can't bear to watch my son die. And she walks away and, and tries to turn her back. And it's that moment where God comes again and says, fear not, do not be afraid, Hagar. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your son. I will make a great nation of him. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Hagar then stands as an amazing symbol, uh, a person who is not only resilient, but sacred in the sense that, that she sees God, hears God, is emboldened by God's presence, listens to God's voice, and has her son blessed as the beginning of a great nation. The story continues because uh, out of Ishmael's exile, indeed, he becomes, in, in Arab tradition, uh, becomes the father of the Arab people. Uh, we will talk about this a little bit more in just a moment and the story of Pentecost and where this emerges very subtly but importantly in our scripture in the New Testament. But in this moment, uh, Ishmael and, and Sarah, Ishmael and, and Hagar are, are struggling for survival. The story moves forward. And when Abraham dies, Ishmael and Isaac are reunited. They come back together and together as brothers bury their father. It seems as though Genesis is lifting up this, this very important message that often uh, the, the, the tensions that we have between cultures and peoples and, and uh, societies, uh, specifically when, when, when children are given the opportunity to play together, like 
Ishmael and Isaac, they play together joyfully and well without thinking about differences or other problems. They also can come together later and reconcile and be reunited. Sadly, it is often the parents that set the stage for bias and bigotry and prejudice. It is sadly Sarah and, and Abraham that, that create the tension that existed then and even still today, just as in many of our cases, again, as Father's Day, as fathers, we have the sacred responsibility to teach our children well and not poorly, to move beyond bigotry and racial bias and foolishness and selfishness and model a better way. It is a remarkable reunion, a remarkable story at Abraham's death that Ishmael and Isaac come back together and bless their father's resting place and bless each other in that moment. Now let's, let's move on and, and recognize there is a difficulty with taking this passage for it appears in this 21st chapter that in a way God kind of blesses the the separation of these families, that Hagar and Ishmael are cast out by the prejudice and, and dislike and even hatred that Sarah has in her resentment for Hagar. And it's as though God says, well, okay, since they can't get along, let's just separate them. That's what it appears in Genesis. Now, moving on through the Old Testament, there is an ongoing debate. Is this right or is this wrong? And it, it would appear when you look at, for example, Joshua and Judges, and I had the opportunity to be in on a, a Bible study discussion a few Monday nights ago with a delightful group of folks wrestling with the book of Joshua. And for all intents and purposes, you look at Joshua and it's very troubling. It appears that the God of Joshua is really uh, sort of advocating ethnic cleansing, genocide, uh, what needs to be done must be done. Uh, there needs to be a separation. In a way, it's kind of a continuation of what Sarah does with Hagar. The same is true as you move on into Judges. And then we have Ruth, where the debate in the Old Testament seems to be, now wait a minute, Ruth is a Moabite. She comes from an enemy uh, that, that uh, the, the people of Israel were not reconciled to, and yet it is Ruth who becomes the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus through the lineage of David. She's the grandmother of David, King David, and she is the, the great ancestor of Jesus. In other words, it is through a, a foreigner who seemed to be uh, exiled and pushed away and separated, and yet somehow the Bible in this fascinating debate going on in the Old Testament, are we to be separate or is there another narrative that is being created as we move through? If you also pay attention to other very important parts of the Old Testament, sometimes overlooked, the book of Jonah is another very subversive word where Jonah also seems to be on the other side of this debate. It's as though Jonah is sort of in dialogue later now with Ezra and Nehemiah, who are advocating for purification of of the Jewish people. They are advocating that men divorce their foreign wives. Sadly, this is a text and a pretext for one of the struggles that we are in the midst of today, and that is 
uh, a white supremacy mindset that takes the passages like the passage of Sarah exiling Hagar, the passages in Joshua, and the passages in Ezra and Nehemiah, where it appears as though God blesses separation. In fact, in Ezra and Nehemiah, what, what Ezra demands and what Nehemiah tries to, to uh, get the people to live out is the divorcing of these foreign wives. The evidence seems to lend itself to the fact that this does not ever happen. It is an effort to purify the, the Judaism of that day, but in fact, the, the families apparently did not abide by what Ezra claimed that God was demanding. And in fact, it wasn't racial separation, as sadly, uh, white supremacists will use this passage to say, this is the, the text and the pretext for not having any kind of interracial marriage, which in fact, there's no racial uh, business going on here at all. It's strictly uh, wives who were not totally Jewish. In many cases, they were Samaritan, which meant they were partly Jewish, and they weren't necessarily considered a separate race. They were considered just simply not Jewish enough. This is very important. It had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's uh, commentary on uh, who was in and who was out. The debate goes on, and Jonah is specifically written in this, in this post-exile period, specifically told as a story to say, now wait a minute, uh, the, the call of Jonah is to go to Nineveh, that is the, the enemy of the people, the, the terrorizers of the Jewish people or the Israelite people uh, way back. And, and Jonah is supposed to go and evangelize them, and Jonah won't do it. And yet he's forced, and we sometimes focus in on the this whale swallowing Jonah, and that's the, the end of the story for many of us, when in fact, that's just the beginning. What the whale serves is, in a way, kind of comic relief in getting Jonah off of his agenda and back on God's agenda, and Jonah preaches eight words to Nineveh, and the Ninevites are converted, and God welcomes them into the family of faith. In other words, uh, God says to Jonah, your enemies are now your friends. They are a part of our family. They have repented and they want to be a part of who we are. And Jonah won't have it. He's furious. And the way the story ends is Jonah standing on a hillside looking at Nineveh, still hoping that God will change his mind and will destroy the people. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, this is a people of a hundred, a city of 150,000 people and also a lot of cows. And that's the way the story ends. In other words, uh, how in the world can you not rejoice over the fact that we have a city of faith and a people who want to be a part of our family of faith? And this makes you angry. What's wrong with you, Jonah? This is the counter story, the counter narrative to what's happening in the Old Testament. It's a great debate that continues on throughout these Hebrew scriptures until we get to the New Testament, which brings us back to the second chapter of Acts and the story of Hagar and Ishmael, because Ishmael is seen now, Ishmael, the son of Hagar and Abraham, Ishmael is seen as the father of the Arab people. And at Pentecost, we sometimes lose this in the, the beautiful reading of that story, uh, the birthday of the church, when all these people from all over the world have gathered in Jerusalem 
to celebrate this, this holiday of Pentecost. And in this moment, we find out that all these people from all over the world have, have or at least the Mediterranean world, they have been uh, in the midst of, of God's presence. They have experienced the movement of the Spirit that, that comes as both wind and fire, and it has generated in them a whole new sense of community. It breaks down barriers of geography and language. People now are hearing in their own language, and they're hearing the good news of what God is doing in their lives. And what's powerful about this is the, the list that we have in Acts is, is one that's so important because it talks about uh, specific groups of people. And so in the second chapter of Acts, we find out that it's not just folks from, from all over the world, but these specific regions. And as I get to the second chapter of Acts now, I had it marked and all of a sudden I lost it. So the second chapter of Acts, we find out there's this long list of all these different names from all over the, the, the Roman world. And here we have, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In other words, Hagar and Ishmael were exiled. They were pushed out from this original family of faith with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. They were separated. But at the time of Pentecost, what the Bible and the story of Jesus is so powerfully lifting up is there is this call for a reconciliation and a coming back together. Yes, we can make an argument that it seems like in Genesis, God apparently advocates a separation, but not in the New Testament. In Acts, there is a clear call of breaking down boundaries, of doing the hard work of coming back together and figuring out how do we live together and love together and be together? How do we work for compassion and understanding? This is the hard but also beautiful work of being a disciple of Jesus Christ in today's world. Now, let me talk about one of the hard things, one of the difficult things for us to recognize as we close out in, in recognizing all these background things of summer solstice, Father's Day, uh, Pride, Pride Month, and Juneteenth. You are aware, I hope, as I am, that Judge Seeliger has determined that the Confederate monument in Decatur Square, and for those of you listening in from other parts of the country, and now we know from all over the world listening to, to our programs, uh, in our Decatur Square, we have this huge obelisk. It is a Confederate monument. It is a reminder of, of what they call the heroic struggle in, in the Confederacy. Now, uh, all over the country right now, these Confederate monuments are being taken down. In our context in Decatur, Judge, Judge Seeliger has condemned this monument as a public menace, a public nuisance, and it is to be taken down. Sadly, there are in our community white supremacists who are in this moment filing a suit to halt the taking down of that monument. Uh, this has happened multiple times over and over again. Uh, and, and people like us have sort of stood by and say, well, that's too bad. Uh, isn't that a shame? Forgetting that our African-American community is 
hurting. Every time they walk by that monument, it is a signal to the African-American community, you are not welcome here, because here's the background of that monument, and it's important for us to know. In 1906, there was what was called the Race Riot of Atlanta. Now, the Race Riot of Atlanta, in fact, was white mobs invading what had been called the Black Wall Street it was this vibrant part of Atlanta where black businesses were thriving. And sadly, a number of white businesses were seeing these African-American-owned businesses as competition. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain deciding instead of mastering his sin, he was just going to eliminate his competition. This is exactly what happened tragically in 1906. The Atlanta race riots were not race riots. They were literally ethnic cleansing and attempted genocide where where white people had a pretext. Uh, they got an excuse to to take out their wrath and anger on the African-American community and wreaked havoc for two and a half to three days of terror, terror in downtown Atlanta in 1906. Now, you might think, well, that's ancient history. That was a long time ago. In 1908, as a result of 1906 and the, the, the pretext of these race riots that the white press, by the way, the two candidates for mayor in those days, one was the, the uh, head editor of the Atlanta Journal, and the other was the head editor of the Atlanta Constitution. They had not yet joined together. They were both sending out propaganda about how horrible this was and that the white people had to stand up for themselves. By 1908, legislation had been passed in Georgia that black people could no longer vote. Listen carefully. The 1906 race riots served again as another pretext, another opportunity for white folks to gain control over black folks. The black businesses, many of those black businesses were, were, were shut down or destroyed, and African Americans no longer could vote. In other words, they had no say in what was going to happen in their lives. Jim Crow laws were beginning to be established over and over again. And simultaneously in 1908, when the black people lost, when, when black folks lost their ability to vote, also all around this area, in schools and in churches, collections began to be um, given, money was collected to establish reminders of white, get this, white supremacy and black suppression. The result of those collections in churches and schools was the Confederate monument established, erected in 1908. It, it coincided with the, the robbing of the ability to vote by the African-American community. And it was a direct result of the, the riots perpetrated by white folks in Atlanta on the African-American community. The Confederate monument is a public nuisance. It is a public menace. It is an embarrassment. And we ought to be ashamed to have it in our community. We are hoping that Judge Seeliger's ruling will be abided by and cranes will be coming in on June 26th and removing that monument. But I hope you will work with me and my brothers and sisters 
who are clergy colleagues in Decatur, uh, we gathered on, on uh, Thursday evening this past week with a lot of other members of our community demanding that it be taken down either on the 26th or before. But we must bind together and, and, and come together, not only with monuments like this as a uh, and, and, and let's just say this, a lot of folks will say, well, you can't change history. No, you can't change history. This is not an effort to change history. What that monument is, though, it's not history. It is propaganda. It is false propaganda. And so we're not trying to change history. We are trying to heal history and heal the present. The his, history is, is what it is. Uh, we must know our history. We must know about 1906 and 1908 and the context for monuments like this one and recognize the importance of folks in our community, especially in the white community, to stand together and say, this is not who we are. This must not be who we are. We will not just say from now on that we're not racist. We must be anti-racist and must, we must actively oppose anyone who would attempt to go back to the days of Abraham and Sarah and separate us from one another and push out Hagar and Ishmael. We must instead claim the Pentecost experience where the Arab people are brought back into the family of faith and celebrated, where it is for me a powerful reminder that we are to continue this struggle, living within the tension of trying to figure out not only how do we live together, but how do we love together? Brothers and sisters, may we respect one another, listen carefully to our stories, work hard for understanding, do the best we can to recognize the complexity and the beauty of our scripture, of our Christian story, and of the deep, abiding, and beautiful call to be disciples of Jesus Christ in this day and every day. Amen.